Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon, alongside St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Barden Co-Recruitment in partnership with District 4. This podcast will explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century. Today, the Community Safety Podcast looks at gambling addiction and the harm that it causes to people and communities. My guest started gambling when he was just 15 years of age and went on to owe hundreds of thousands of pounds to moneylenders. Please take a listen to a snippet of today's interview. And I then text these people back and for whatever reason, they told me the truth. And I just said, um, I'm not going to rehab. Who's told you that? And then they said, do you not think we know people who work at the hospital who have told us that you are going to rehab? And they sent me the address of the rehab. And I just had this massive meltdown of thinking, oh my God, I have told them everything in there. And whoever worked on that ward or has got information, someone's linked it and said it and I didn't go. And at this point, I owed around the 30 grand mark and I went on for another two years gambling and I owed 306 grand in in two years. It's now time. This is the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon. I've been working in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. Please like, rate and subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest as Mark Murray. Mark placed his first bet at the age of 16. Something that started off as fun quickly turned into addiction. Over a 13-year period, Mark gambled every day and built debts with the wrong sort of people. He was attacked with a hammer, ran off to a different country, had a number of failed suicide attempts and was kidnapped. At the age of 29, he finally got the help he needed and is now nine years without a bet and he's the co- co-founder of the charity Wise Up. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on to the Community Safety Podcast. No, thanks very much for having me, Jim. It's been a long time coming. I know we've been planning it for, for a long time. So, yeah, so it's, <laughs> yeah it's, I know. It's, it's good to be on It is here. great to have you on, mate. It yeah. really is. Mark, I always start off, and I know your early life is, is quite interesting anyway, but I always ask my guests just to start off telling us about your growing up years in Bolton. Um yeah. You know, just give us a flavour of, 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 of those kind of years. Yeah, so um, I was brought up off a single mum um, in Bolton. My dad left home when I was about four years old and um, didn't really miss my dad as much as that sounds bad, but I didn't really miss my dad because I had a lot of love and attention off the rest of my family. Um, you know, looking back, probably quite poor. I was from working class background and my mum worked a number of jobs to provide for me and, you know, to put a pair of school shoes and a pair of football boots on my feet. And that was my sort of passion from a young age football. So I could have always tried harder in a classroom, but I always got okay grades and I was never trying to be top of the class. But what I did try and succeed in was, was football. And, you know, that started off playing on the backfield with my friends and then having a kick about in school and getting in the school football team. And that quickly progressed really after I joined a grassroots football team and did quite well there and then um, ended up going to Bolton Wanderers and in sort of later years in my mid-teens ended up um, playing for Man City 
Um, so I was probably one of the lads in my year group that thought they had a good chance of being a footballer. But looking back now, it's, you know, so difficult. But the reason I, you know, share all them things, there was certainly no warning signs. You introduced me there, that glowing sort of report of that bio of, you know, being kidnapped. And, you know, my life didn't start off that bad. I was brought up. Um, I knew what was right and wrong. I had really good morals. Um, I was happy. I was loved. And there was certainly no warning signs of what was next. It's quite an interesting point that Mark is because I think when I interview an awful lot of people that have gone through some trauma in their lives and that when you look sort of in the majority of the people I've interviewed when you kind of track back into their early life there's there's a lot of trauma and a lot of things have happened but actually you're contrasting to that really aren't you in terms of what you've just told us there you had as good a start as anybody else really didn't you apart from dad not being present you had quite a good a good start in life. Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I, I was never a bad lad growing up. Um, I got involved in what young boys do. And, you know, I had lots of friends on my estate that were getting in a yeah, little bit it. of bother. And I, I always stayed away from it. However, um, I probably did have a major life event happen um, at the age of 15. And we talk about that trauma. And this was probably my trauma, really, what I went through. And I just didn't handle it well. And this is probably the first time that I'd experienced something in my life that I just felt like I didn't handle well. Yeah, what was that then? What happened? Um, so at the age of 15, um, just turning 16, I became a dad, um, which wasn't planned. Um, you know, my girlfriend fell pregnant in my year group at school. And, you know, I remember the day when we found out that news of going to a local family planning center and getting this news that the test was positive And I was that young, I didn't even know what that meant. Um, walked, yeah. out, walked outside and remember the sunshine hitting me and from that moment, my life sort of changed forever because I'd gone from being a boy that was this promising footballer to all this sort of responsibility and not knowing what to do. And, you know, that day I went and sat on this park behind the family planning center. I cried for two hours, um, didn't know what to do because I was scared of going home and telling my mum. And then um, I went home and my mum answered the door and my mum said to me, you know, how's your day been at school? And I said, yes, completely fine. And as a lot of young lads do when they've got a lot going on, they pretend that they're okay. And that's that's what I did that day. And I almost became good at it from that point for the next 13 years. It sort of played to my advantage, pretending that I was okay. But, you know, I eventually became a dad at that age. And as much as I was pretending to be okay, I really wasn't. I was, I was crying a lot on my own in my bedroom. And then I'd go out to the outside world and be acting the big, you know, strong and, I'm the young promising footballer and very vocal on a football pitch and I'm going to deal with this like I do deal with things on a football pitch. And underneath, looking back, I was just a little boy that was scared about what was happening. Um, and I just didn't handle it well. And I had this big thing of being really scared about what people thought. So whether that was the school teachers, whether that was my friends, whether that was my friend's parents. And you know, when my when my son was born, Callum, um, I just turned 16 and I remember walking around with his pram at that time and and people would be asking me, you know, oh, who's this? And I'd be turning around and saying, it's my brother. Um, and I look back and, um, you know, that's not a normal thing to be saying when you're pushing your son. It's a, You should be proud of that moment. But I was just yeah. that embarrassed of what was going on. Um, I just was living with this secret and I begged my mum not to tell the coaches at, at Man City um, you know, and funnily enough, I've been in there today, um, helping a young player that's struggling and, and I, and I told the club, um, you know, what went on and, you know, there was no really safeguarding as such, and this isn't throwing things at Man City, but 
they just thought I had a problem. I had problems off the pitch. They didn't know what it was. They just seen me change drastically. And, and, and sadly I, I got released at the age of 16 and, you know, to a lot of people that might seem sad, but I was actually glad that um, I didn't have to lie anymore. So it was a relief actually when I got released at, at 16 because I didn't have to go in training and pretend that I was okay anymore. Yeah. A um, couple of things that just sprung to mind from doing my research. One of the things that, coming back to what you were saying about you becoming you know, a dad at that age, Am I right in saying that your mum actually was uh, a family planning type yeah. uh, officer when yeah. when you found out that your girlfriend was pregnant? <laughs> yeah, she should have got sat really. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's not a good advert for my mum, is it? She, it's funny <laughs> no, enough, it's I did, um, my mum actually works doing, she's a specialist menopause nurse now, my mum. So she actually did a podcast for us for a service that we got with Wise Up called Wellbeing with Wise Up. So I actually did a podcast with my mum last week and she introduced herself as someone um, who's a family planning nurse and then she actually turned around and said well my talk with you didn't work did it so it's, <laughs> yeah the irony of that is just um, it's frightening really but yeah she, the, the funny story behind that she was a family planning I thought it was quite nurse. interesting when I, when I was doing my research I thought I did have a bit of a chuckle to myself <laughs> the, other, the other question I was going to ask you was just um we talk about pressure on teenagers and obviously that was a big deal for you going home, telling mom, but how did the other side react as well? Did you get a lot of hassle from your girlfriend's um, family as well? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, you know, we use that word trauma. It was traumatic because um, families fell out. Um, you know, the, there were things that were said on both sides and, and, and really looking back, they were trying to protect their daughter and my mum was trying to protect me on her own. My dad wasn't around at that point. It, that was around the corner. But um, my mum had a lot to deal with around that time. Um, a lot of pressure, a lot of fallouts happened. There was drinking involved. It was all um, very messy and in the middle of it, were two teenagers that were really scared about what was happening, um, pretending that they were okay. But it, it it was just, it was a hell of a lot to deal with. And, you know, um, uh, you know, a lot of my friends since have had children in the mid-20s and stuff, and they, and they say how, how difficult it is at that time. And, you know, I've got a photograph um, feeding my son with my school blazer on, and I always look at that photograph and the boy on that photo, and I think, wow, you know, when I should have been, revising for my GCSEs I was changing nappies and feeding my son and it was just a lot to deal with and then obviously the family's falling out which isn't nice um thankfully it's not like that today and, and there's a lot of bridges been built but yeah it was tough you know what I totally agree with them I became a dad at 23 and um I, I can totally resonate with that your life changes overnight you know and I was you know 23 I was married home mortgage um and I found it tough I found it so tough and we had another another child a couple of years later and it is hard and I, I can't even imagine what it's like as a 16 year old lad having to deal with that kind of responsibility you're still a child at the end of the day aren't you yeah yeah I, I, I honestly felt at times that I was just every day was a bad dream um and you know the minute I opened my eyes um I felt like I wanted to shut them again because I thought I've got to go through this again. Um, and, you know, I remember people finding out in the, in the changing room at football and, 
and I, and I work in football now and I shared this moment of two of the teammates asking me the question, have I got someone pregnant? And they were laughing and I joined in yeah. the, I joined in the laughing and, and, and was sort of saying, yeah. And, you know, and they were going, oh, you're a madhead. And, and I was sort of playing up to that thing of, um, yeah, I am a bit crazy having a kid at a young age, but they didn't know what was really going on. And, and, and I was in absolute pieces, but as a lot of young men do, it's that bravado of pretending that you're okay. We're, we're just we're just terrible men, aren't we? You know, and lads at that matter. You know, we're brilliant at hiding hiding what's really going on underneath, isn't it? You know, I've um, I've suffered with a lot of mental health during my time. I was in the police for twenty years, and I hid it. I hid it for years. Yeah. And you know, outside everybody thought, you know, Jim Nixon, you know, this copper that can do this, do that. But underneath, you know, as I'm sure you've gone through, I was like um. I was like, you know, one of those, like, uh, is it like a swan where they look, you know, glamorous at the top, you know, and then yeah. the, the legs are underneath, they, they, they go in 10 to the dozen. Yeah. And um, we're terrible at that, men. And this is why, you know, I think it's so important that people like us talk about these kind of things and get it out there because there's a lot of men that are suffering and a lot of boys that are suffering. And I think what we want to get across to them is it is all right to say that you're not, you're not okay yeah, and that yeah. you do need help because there's, I say to people all the time, there's no gold medals at the end, you know, if you don't come up and talk. Actually, if you don't talk and you don't disclose things, you're going to end up being worse, as you found out. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, I think we, it's just so good that we do things like this. Yeah, we're getting better at it, but, um, you know, there's there's still a lot of young men taking their own life and, and you know, older men, um, and that's what we've got to mm. try and prevent. And I think the thing that's different between men and women, women are good at talking, um, a lot better at talking than men and being open, you know, and, and they sort of stick together on that. What men seem to do is wait until they're at the edge of a cliff and sometimes literally before they ask for help. And if you imagine it on a spectrum that you, there's stages to getting help and um, for some reason we go right to the end of that spectrum. And at that point when you are rock bottom, it is so difficult to then like get the help and put things right. And for some reason, we need to get in the habit. Um, we wait till the rock bottom, but we need to get into the habit of, right, I need to change things here. I need to ask for help at this point or, you know, I'm struggling or things could be better. So what do I need to change? You don't have to wait until you're feeling like you want to take your own life before you ask for help. It's a good point, Asia, because if you get to that point, you could go one way or another, couldn't you? And a lot of men, as we know, go the other way and, and that's the end of their lives. And the thing for me with suicide, you know, it's not just, and I've seen, unfortunately, in my own personal career, you know, I've seen a lot of it, and it's dev- it's the devastation that gets left behind that is yeah. the problem with suicide. You know, the person actually commits the act is 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 free in some ways, but yeah. the devastation that I've seen left behind is 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 crazy, absolutely crazy. And I know you've experienced this yourself, and we'll we'll come yeah. on to that in a bit. It, it's it's, um, it's a t- just just on that one, Jim. It's a tough one because. Um, you know, the, the the hot topic when people are discussing sort of suicide is that it, it's selfish and it's, and I can totally see why people think that, but on the other side of it, um, you know, and I'll touch on my story shortly, but when you're in that position, you, you're honestly not thinking, I, I don't believe it is a selfish act. You, you've honestly convinced yourself that life would be better off without you. And it's just such um, a difficult topic to speak about, but yeah, it's just terribly sad, and and anyone who goes through it, where you know, it's just, um, yeah, it's a devastating, devastating time when it happens. 
Yeah, absolutely. As I say, we'll just keep raising awareness and just plead to anybody. You know, if you're if you're listening to this podcast now and you are struggling, then you know, reach out. There's so much help out there. Um, you know, out there in this day and age, you know, there are people out there to help. You've just got to make that first move. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's going to turn to now, Mark, was um, when your dad came back into your life at age 15. I think your dad all of a sudden popped back up. And yeah. I think that was another trauma really in your life, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, looking back, as much as I said I didn't miss my dad, I did in a way. I missed having a dad at certain times. And my mum was always stood on the sideline watching me play football. And I used to always think, getting a bit embarrassed by it when it was everything to do with football was my mum, even though she was fantastic at doing all that and supporting me. Sometimes you want your dad there. And when people were doing things with a dad at weekend, I'd lie and say that I've been doing things with my dad and I'd never seen him. And then, you know, I remember hearing that he'd returned back to Bolton and my phone rang one day and he he asked me to come and meet him um, in a local pub. Um, and I just turned 16 at this point. I think my son had actually been born at this point. So I felt like I, I needed money and all them things. And I thought my dad's back. He's going to help me. Um, and I think I had football that, that day and I may have asked him to come and watch me play football. And I don't think he did. And it was the fact that he said, come and meet me in a pub. But I just thought this is great. I'm going meeting my dad. And I remember walking in a pub and looking at, at this big tall man and, um, he, I remember him pulling a big wad of cash out of his po- um, pocket and he was a builder. Obviously, he got paid in cash. Um, I hope the tax man's not um, listening to this, but um, he sort of he, he sort of pulled this money out and, and gave me some money, which was £20. He bought me a pint of beer and he said to me, that's your gambling money, um, you know, for the day. And I remember thinking, what does he mean by that? And I'm not gambling, I'm sticking it in my pocket. I was I was quite good with money at that point. I had a couple of jobs, um, a Saturday job, and I, I worked in a nursing home doing little bits and bats. So I was always good. I wanted to have money, be, probably because I was conscious that growing up, we didn't have much. Um, so I just thought, I'm not spending that on gambling. But what that involved that day is, is me watching me, my dad gambled basically, putting his bets on. And I remember it, he was putting £50 an hour on, which I thought, wow, that's a lot of money. I don't really remember him losing and he would have definitely lost that day. What I remember is the wins. And when he did win, he would give me the slip. He would ask me go to go back to the bookies and collect the winnings. And then I thought, mm. you know, I'm going to try and have a go at this. And like a lot of gambling addicts, um, they seem to have that beginner's luck. And I had that that day now. One thing I want to make clear um, is I was underage. I should have been 18. Um, I didn't get stopped. Uh, You know, there was no, it wasn't like as strict as walking in a shop and asking for, you know, some beer at that age. It was more like they didn't really ID you at that point. Um, I didn't get stopped. I was actually telling them that I was putting my dad's bets on so they knew my dad. And I almost felt like a bit of a celebrity. And it was, oh, are you Mark's son? And yeah, no problem. And um, you know, my dad was quite a big gambler at that time. So when I was doing it that day, I was just thinking, this is great. And this involves a lot of money. Every time my dad won, he gave me money. And I also started to win and lose, but I remember the wins. And I started off with £20 that day and I walked out with just over £800. And I remember having this pocket full of money and my, my um, you know, my pockets bulging. And also that day, I remember every time that I did win, I went back 
to the to the pub and my dad was sort of telling everybody in the pub, ah, Max had another winner. Um, you know, and I, and I told my mum this and my mum got quite upset because she said he's never been on um, at the side of a football pitch telling you well done for your football. But the first thing um, you got that pat on the back for was winning. Um, and I just, I loved it and I couldn't wait to go back the week after and do it all again. How quickly did you then sort of get, were you sort of from that day on was doing it more or less every day then, Mark? Um, you know, in that bio, I've said probably every day, probably the every day came from about the age of 18. But the next two years, my relationship with gambling um, was never, never healthy. It was always, I was always chasing my losses. When I won, it was never big enough. Um, I remember losing everything that I've got in my pocket all the time. And these are big warning signs and and it was affecting my mental health from very early early on so i my relationship with gambling was never going to be an healthy one you know people can gamble shouldn't be gambling under under 18 but if you're 18 and you can do it and it's not affecting your mental health and you're not chasing your losses then good luck to you i'm not coming on here battering gambling if you can do it good luck to you but i could never do that it was always that all or nothing and i and i and i think that thing that I had in football that adrenaline and that loving winning and hating losing. And every time I lost on a football pitch, I couldn't wait to get back on it and put it right. It I replicated that in my gambling. Um, and I'd say by the age of 18, when I just started my apprenticeship, I was probably about two years into it then. Then cracks started to appear in my life with relationships, with debts. Um, and it was catching up on me. You know, I used to get paid £100 a week. Um, which is a lot of money for a young lad, but um, by the age of 18, I'd had a second child. Um, I had to get to work on a train. I had to provide my own lunches. Um, I, I, I never had any money left. And I always used to hope, live in hope that that hundred pound would turn into more money. And I think that is a lot of people's reason for doing it. You know, um, there's a reason there are bookmakers um, in areas, you know, are quite challenging a lot of the time where I grew up. There's a bookies on every corner and it's like they look at that place and that's their hope, that's their way out. And that's what I thought it was for me, but it just never was. It got me in a lot of trouble from a young age. Yeah, I can, I can resonate. I can see that, you know, I can see that um, when you are in that kind of financial difficulty, it is it is a it is a, a chance, isn't it? It's a way out. You know, if you could, like you did that day, you know, you you started off with a few quid and ended up with eight hundred. That's a massive markup, isn't it? Yeah. So at the end of the day, you you think in your own mind that you can do that, and it's like you were saying. I think that competitiveness of you as well, that competitive streak that you've got within yourself. I'm the same. You know, if I lose, yeah. I want to get back and I want to win again, and I can see exactly how you. If you lose 200 quid, you want to get it back and more, don't you? So you just keep doing it. But it's just that spiral of destruction that you don't realise is happening at the actual time when you're doing it. No, I I just, to be honest, Jim, I just thought it was um, a financial problem. I thought I was bad with money, which I was, but it, I wasn't. Yeah. It was the addiction which, which was killing me. Um, but I just always thought, well, if I do get this big win, then I'll stop. Um, the famous last words, I said that from the age of 18 and no win was ever big enough. Um, and you know, I did have big wins as, as an 18 year old. And again, a big sign of it is when you don't tell people what you've won because you want to hold some back 
because you want more um, fuel to gamble with, basically. So it's not it's not real money. You know, I used to turn around to people and say, oh, I've won £200, and really I'd won five, £600, and the rest would be hid yeah. under my bed because I wanted to go back. So it was just, I was just holding the money for a couple of days, and it was always going to go back. Yeah, because I suppose if you disclosed that, say, to a girlfriend or whatever, they would have expected that money to have been spent on certain things, wouldn't they? But if yeah. you can hold a couple of hundred, three hundred back, you've then got your gambling money for the next couple of days, and hopefully, in your mind, I'm going to, you know, hopefully, double, triple, quadruple this. Yeah, and, and when I when I did win, you know that I, I was obviously living with my second child at that time, and my girlfriend, it was with a dif- different girl. You know, I didn't I would make it easy for myself from a young age, but. When I was living with um, that girl, you know, I would nip to the shop. I would always be making excuses of wanting to go to the shop and whether it was for nappies or milk or whatever it was. Um, And I just would always walk past the bookies and think, well, I'm not going to go in. And I would go in. Um, You know, one time I went to the shop for some nappies and didn't come back for two two days and literally was running around getting more and more money off all these different people. Um, and going straight back to the bookies, back on the roulette machine, trying to win the money back and caused absolute carnage to the point where I did go to the shop for some nappies earlier on and there were people knocking on the door. And my partner at the time just thought I was, you know, nipping to the shop and just a crazy existence. And, you know, this is where it started, that sort of chaos that came with it. It wasn't just affecting me at that point, it was affecting everybody around me by the age of 18. So how did you, when things, obviously appreciate you were earning, but not a massive amount, you clearly got into a lot of mess. How were you funding it? How did you eventually, you know, fund that sort of regular, you know, betting sort of activity? Yeah, I'd say by the age of about 19 to the age of 21, it was the sort of people that I were getting involved with. So I ruined my credit rating from a young age. So a lot of people say, Mm. you know, how much did you owe in loans? Well, when you ruin your credit rating straight away, you can't get any more loans. Maybe payday loans, they did come thick and fast in my mid-20s. But um, like with the bank and stuff, um, I got a credit card, I spent on it. I got an overdraft. I, I didn't pay it back. So I couldn't get really any more money from organizations like the banks or loans and stuff. So I started to go to the likes of loan sharks and people that were involved in crime in my area. Um, I got away with it because they, a lot of the time it was people that I grew up with. They fell out with me and they threatened me. But then when I started to do it, you know, I'm from Bolton. When I started to do it to people out of Bolton, people who wasn't my friends, people who didn't really know me, it started to change and, I remember getting off a train one Friday and a, a group of people that I owed a thousand pound to um, were waiting for me. Um, you know, this thousand pound that I owed them, I was paying 250 pound a week interest. I wasn't even earning that. So I was never going to pay them back. And it was just this, you know, they knew they'd got me um, where they wanted me. And it was just interesting. I missed one payment. I, I got a phone call basically saying, have you got the money? It was payday. I made an excuse. and The phone went dead. And I remember thinking vividly, well, I've got away with that. I bought myself a few more days. And little did I know they came straight to Bolton, waited for me to get off the train. They knew I, I got the train. And as I 
came out of the train station, this car was following me without me knowing, you know, I've later found out what had actually happened. And as I got on the other side of the town centre, um, I remember a feeling of a car door opening behind me and I looked over my left shoulder, which was the wrong shoulder to look over. Um, and as I looked over my right shoulder, I just felt a big sort of bang on my head um, and a painful one at that. And the term sparked out, I, I quickly realised what it was because I just seen a big bright white light um, and I woke up in hospital and what had happened is someone had jumped out of the car, hit me over the head with an hammer and drove off and a taxi driver was driving past, seeing what had happened, dragged me by the feet and took me to um, Royal Bolton Hospital um, and I remember keeps as I came round of, of not knowing what had happened and when I eventually came round and my family had been contacted, my mum, I remember vividly being at the end of the bed um, crying and asking me the question for the first time, Mark, is this because you're gambling? And you know, if anyone's listening to this and they're struggling and the families find out or the love, loved ones or the colleagues, whoever it might be, and you believe that then people care about you, tell them the truth because at this point, I wish I'd just told the whole truth. But what I used to do in my head, I used to think, well, if I tell them a bit of the truth, that's being honest. But the other 70% that I was leaving out, I was lying. So it wasn't the truth. Um, and I told my mum I'd got in financial difficulty because I'd got two children. I needed, you know, that was the main problem that was putting me in debt. It wasn't really the gambling. And I've gone to these loan sharks and my mum said, well, I do believe you've got a gambling problem. Um, I hid a lot from my mum, to be honest, at this point, because I, I basically didn't want my mum to know that I was so close to my dad because of their relationship. So I felt like I was being disloyal to my mum being so close to my dad. So she sort of had an idea, but I, I gave her a snippet of the truth and she agreed to pay these people off on one condition that I go and get some help and support when I recovered from my head injury. And I did, I agreed at the age of 21 to go to, um, you know, what they call Gamblers Anonymous, which is a fellowship meeting that they have for every addiction. And I walked in there in my first meeting as a 21-year-old after just being attacked with this hammer um, and basically sat there, listened for the first week and and looked at everyone and thought, I'm not as bad as these people. I'm the youngest one here. Mine's a financial problem. I've not lost everything because of it. I've not lost my house, this, that, and the other. What I really wish I'd done at that point is looked at everyone and thought, this is me in 10 years. And I didn't yeah. do. I just, I just thought, no, now I've got these people paid off. I won't get in trouble and I'll and I'll get a good job. And and despite all this going on at that at this time, I was progressing in my career. I was liked at work. I was I always had a good work ethic. I'd gone from being an apprentice electrician to an electrical estimator. And around um this time I got offered to go back to uni um to do a degree and work for Balfour Beatty as as a um as a QS, as a trainee QS, and and I was and I, and I did that. Um, so as I just turned twenty one after just being attacked with this hammer, I got this good job, and I thought this will fix it because people who earn good money, or so I thought, and have a shirt and tie on and drive a company car, I've got no problems, and they can if they do get in trouble financially, it's easy to sort of fix it. Yeah. Um, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It just gave me more fuel to gamble. I think also at that age, Mark, you don't, you don't kind of 
look at things the same way that you do when you've got that experience behind you, do you? You know, I look at my 21-year-old self now and look back and think, I didn't have a clue, really. You know what I mean? I, I, I would have probably made exactly the same decision as you, looked at those people and, 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 and come up with exactly the same decision that you did. So I, th- yeah. I can totally see where you're coming from because in the, in your eyes, you're thinking, I've got loads of years ahead of me. I can sort this. I'm going to get a good job. We all know QSs are paid you know, at the top of their game, good money. So I can see the logic that you would have applied at that time. Yeah. But, you know, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. Yeah. I, I always say but, to people when they sort of reach out, um, you know, people do relate and think, oh, I've got, well, I've got a good job. I can get back on my feet. And there's an element of that. There's truth in it where, yeah, you can get back the money that you've lost a little bit quicker. But I always say your main job now, if you're a gambling addict, is stopping gambling because you could have any job in the world. But if you've got that addiction burning away, it doesn't matter what you're earning. You know, I've met people in recovery that are famous footballers and rock stars and doctors and teachers. It just doesn't matter. It's nothing to do with, you know, your social status or what job you've got or what car you drive. It's It, it, it can get anybody. Gets everyone, doesn't it? Like a lot of addictions, yeah, you're absolutely right there. And the only thing that's different with some of those people is probably the stakes are an awful lot higher. And yeah, you hear that a lot with footballers, don't you? You know, we we talked earlier before we switched the mic on, you know, that, you know, Mer- Paul Merson's a, a great example, really. And I can't, can't imagine how much he was probably putting putting on, you know, on various bets. It, it, it would have been, you know, probably hundreds of thousands, wouldn't it? Yeah. At it's some f- point in his right, career. Yeah frightening amounts absolutely um, frightening it's funny the the, the amounts and, and and you know when you're in fellowship meetings you don't mention the amounts that you lost and I'll, and I'll touch on my amounts what I got to eventually in the end but I'll be honest with you it was it was just as head wrecking when I was losing you know losing the, the bill money in my early 20s to when it all like was crazy in my late 20s so it just feels like a number, although it has been a lot more difficult to get out of the trouble now I owe, you know, I owed all that money, but I'll touch on that shortly. Yeah. So you obviously came to the decision that you were going to be okay. You, I, I presume you carried on gambling. Yeah. How, uh, how long was it? Because I know from sort of doing some research on you that at some point the heat got so bad that you actually did sort of, you know, exit Bolton yeah. and try and get out the area. How long did it take from sort of your 21 sort of years to you know, what what point did you sort of, you know, get to that point when you had no choice but to do one? Yeah, so I got the job at 21. Um, again, did well, passed my first year of my degree. Everything's like my colleagues like me. Um, I, I could always wear a mask even when things were going on outside of work that people like me, so... That sort of bought me time. But by the end of that, um, coming to the end of my degree, after about three and a half years, um, you know, it was just, I knew that my my world was sort of caving in, basically, where I owed a a lot more money than I did when I was sort of 21. And one group of people I owed £10,000 to, I was desperate to get it back. Um, I just kept losing. I was begging family members for it. And I was at work and basically someone had gone round to my mum's house and I didn't live with my mum at the time, but people knew I was close to her. They went round and they made threats to my mum and they said they're going to hurt my two children um, if I don't get hold of this money. And my mum rang me up. They also came looking for me at work 
and as I sort of crossed paths with them um, on, on the motorway, I didn't, didn't know I'd crossing past. They were coming to the building site looking for me. Um, and my mum just said, Mark, enough's enough. You've ruined your life. Um, you, you, you know, the rest of the family absolutely hate you. Um, and we want you to get out of the way. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, I want you to go. I'll give you the money for a flight now to to leave and I was like, mom, I can't leave. I said, I'm right at the end of a degree. I've got a good job. I've got two children. And she said, you're not going to pass your degree. You're not being a good dad. You're being a terrible son. Um, and I don't want you around anymore because you're not just putting your own life in danger. You're putting your, you know, all us in danger as well. And she got a laptop out. Um, and, and you know, something I don't mention as well, she got a laptop out and someone knocked on the door who I owed the money to. And my mum went to the door and I climbed in the loft and my mum had a skylight and I climbed on the roof of my mum's house. And my mum lives on a, like a terrace street. And I thought if these people come upstairs, I would rather jump off than them get hold of me because I know what they do to people. Um, That's and crazy, I, isn't it? And I was sat on the roof and my mum only reminded me that the other day. My mum climbed upstairs to the loft. She had some like steps up to it. And I was sat on the roof and she just said, Mark, what are you doing? I mean, my mum's face was just like in total shock. And she said, enough's enough. She got a laptop out. And I st- and literally we were thinking, should I go to Spain and I'm flyers out in a bar? Should I do this? Should I do... I didn't have a clue where I was going to go. And my mum said she, kn- she knew someone that had moved to a place called Sark in the Channel Islands. I'd never heard of it before. But she said, it's a tiny little island. And I looked on it in Google. And she said, there are no bookies there. You can't get in trouble. There are only 500 people. I'll pay for your flights now. And I just nodded. I just thought I need to get out of the way. Um, and by the Sunday, my uncle was at the bottom of my mum's garden. I went down with a suitcase um, with some clothes in it, some photographs of my children. I chucked the suitcase over the bag because the people that I owed money to were waiting outside. My mum's thinking I was going to return. Um, and I didn't come back for the next two years. Um, I turned Gosh. up I turned up uh, on this tiny little island thinking, wow, you know, what am I going to do now? And I went to a few pubs and started talking to people, lied, reinvented myself, told everyone I was traveling and I was looking for a bit of work on the island. They believed me. And by the Tuesday, I'd say I was washing pots in a kitchen. Um, So Friday, I went to work as a QS and Tuesday, I was a pot washer in the Channel Islands trying to reinvent myself. And when you were there, obviously there were no bookies, but was the temptation still there? Did you find a way? Um, yeah. So I, I could have gone on a desert island and I would have, you know, bet on two um, ants running up and down the beach. It was, um, I found a way and it was not that I found it really. It was someone introduced me to it there and it was online and I've been there for about four weeks and the guy who was renting off opened his laptop and said, do you want to pick some football teams? I'm putting an accumulator on. And I thought, don't do it, don't do it. And and I ended up doing it and I managed to get in trouble though. Not the same amounts that I was doing back home, but it, it followed me. I, I became unreliable when I, you know, didn't it came to paying my rent down there. I didn't pay it and I was loaning money off people and not paying them back and just really not being the person that I wanted to be. Um and, and despite all doing this, I still value myself as having good morals and my moral compass was just way off at this time. And I was just was doing um, some quite bad things, really, and just being unreliable, and my word meant nothing. Um, 
and I stayed there for 12 months and managed to get in trouble and it was all catching up with me. And then um, I got a phone call off probably not the best person to be around, but my dad, my dad was over in Dublin and said, son, why don't you come over here? I've set a construction company up. Um, you know, I've got a few people from Bolton over here and your cousin Aaron's over and your uncle Brett. And I was probably closer to my, my uncle Brett and Aaron than I was to my dad, to be honest, because, um, my dad, my uncle was around not all the time when I was young, but I, I did see him. Um, so I just jumped at the chance and thought, great, but more, more importantly, my, my younger cousin was there and I thought we might be able to have a few nights out because I'd been missing my family. So I arrived in Dublin as a probably 26 year old again with, you know, a lot of baggage. But, um, first thing I did when I got there, I, I moved my stuff into my dad's and, and, and as he arrived, I pulled up in his taxi and I, I looked, um, up and my dad's apartment was there and underneath it was a Bucky's. And I just thought, oh God, like, and I, and I got in my dad's front room and I sat down and I could hear all the TVs with all the horse racing in his front room. And I just thought, this is not good. And my dad, one of the first things he did is he wrote his betting slip out and he said to me, go and stick us a, this bet on. And I said, no. And I remember the face, like what he pulled of, are you being serious? I said, I'm going to try and stop dad. And he like looked at me and sort of laughed as if to say, you've got no chance. Um, and he was right because a couple of weeks later, I, I, you know, you can't beat him. I joined him. Worst place you could be really at that time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I can kind of see why you were lured there because it must have been a very, very lonely place. And also, no doubt you were starting to get into a bit of a mess on on Sark, I suppose, with the gambling, wasn't you? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, but yeah, the first, the first five or six weeks of being there, I, you know, I enjoyed it. I went on lots of... Um, lots of nights out and had a good time with my cousin and after about five five or six weeks of being there he started arguing arguing with his girlfriend who was back home and I just thought you know I'd been through it in my early 20s and you know when we spoke about men earlier on of um, not good at talking and I just thought yeah. he's going for a breakup. He's finding it hard. It'll, it'll be fine. I remember saying to him, it'll pass this. It'll be completely fine. And he said, well, I've got to go home and sort it out. And at the time, Aaron was um, Aaron was a promising footballer as a young lad. He played at Oldham. And funnily enough, um, Mika Richards put a, a, a photo on the other day. Um, and, and he was actually in the same team. I didn't know that Aaron played with the same team as M- Mika Richards. So um, right. that that you know, was a, was a shock the other day when I seen that, but, um, Aaron then left school and went on to be, um, he went to do a degree and he was going to be a PE teacher. So he was working with my dad for a little bit of extra money in the holidays. So he wasn't permanently over there working with my dad. He was just temporary. So, um, he went home to sort this relationship out. This girl basically said, whatever, I think there was a bit of a, um, nasty discussion and as as young people do i'm not sort of blaming her for what was next but um you know the few text messages and we believe he misread something i don't know on facebook um and for whatever reason he went he he was at my auntie and uncle's and and um literally walked downstairs past his sister on the couch um and walked straight past her went to the garage and he hung himself um because his girlfriend wasn't getting back with him. Um, and for whatever reason in his head, he felt like 
that was the end of his work world. Um, you know, I wish so much, and I, and I think back, and I, and I do a lot in schools now, and I do a lot in football clubs and all different environments, and I, I sort of try and rewind it back and say, what would have happened if his sister would have said, "Are you okay?" Or and I'm and again, I'm not putting it on his sister here, but. Uh, what I'm saying is if he would have spoke about it in front of his family, there's a good chance he would have cried. He would have felt stupid. He would have felt daft. He would have, you know, I'm crying in front of my mum and dad and my, and, my, and my sister here, but he, he would have felt better. But for whatever reason, he walked past and just, he'd made his mind up and he actually wrote sorry on Facebook before he'd done it. And it wasn't really smartphones. Then it was laptops. And I was online when he wrote sorry. And I was just going to write something and one of his friends wrote something underneath and I just thought I'd seen photographs the night before of him being on a night out on Facebook and the only thing I thought is he's been stupid on a night out and he's apologising for something that he's done but he was actually saying sorry because he knew he was going to take his own life and you know I always think you know if I would have just wrote that or it's just what ifs and you know, we touched on what suicide does. Um, I'll be honest with you, grief's just a funny thing and um, you don't know how to be, you don't know how to react, you feel numb. His parents were in shock. Mm. I remember speaking to his auntie and she was saying, Aaron's dead. And I was thinking, he's not, he's on Facebook. Um, it was just all shock and then going home and seeing him, um, you know, lay in the hospital and then just before the funeral going seeing him and and he had the same um, outfit on as as when I last had a night out with him. He had his check shirt on, his jeans and his converse. I remember the purple check shirt. And I, and I was just thinking, this is like so surreal. You, you're sort of trying to be there for your family. But if, I, if I'm honest, it just fed my addiction more. Because when I was gambling, anything could have been going on. But when I was gambling, I wasn't thinking about anything. So as much as it was, it was the thing that was bringing me to my knees, it was the thing that was holding me up a lot of the time, or I saw, I thought it was, it was the escapism from reality. And I just remember around this time of every opportunity, if I went into a bookies, I wasn't thinking about Aaron being dead. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was that way of just forgetting a bit and putting like a, a bit of a smoke screen over it, wasn't it really? Just how you would forget about it and just think that life was just the same. I totally get that. It must have been devastating for you at that time um, because you'd been through so much and then to go through that as well, um, it must have been the the, the sort of the tipping edge for you really, I take it. Yeah, it it might seem bad. It, It wasn't. I went on longer. You know, that should have been the thing that sought yourself out, Mark. This has happened... Um, yeah, and it and it didn't work like that. Um, I I cried. I was upset. Um, I got to re- like I'll touch on it in a minute, like my recovery and so, stuff. But I broke down about I'd say about four years later, five years later, no, about four years later, maybe. Um, I had a panic attack that Aaron had died, and it would. This was the first time that I'd stopped gambling for a period of time. And I actually thought about what happened. So it showed how much gambling was distracting my thought process because yeah. when I had stopped and the realisation that Aaron had died and he wasn't coming back was four years later. 
And I realize looking back now of how damaged I, I was because of the gambling and how much it was like sticking plasters over things all the time. So, um, it, but it, yeah, it was devastating. It, it, his mum and dad have never been the same. I don't, you know, my, yeah. my his sister, my cousin, um, she was angry for a long time and because of the, the destruction that it had caused and people just grieve in different ways. And it's just... It's just sad watching it. It's just sad. Devastating. But it's, it's interesting what you said there, though, is that um, I've dealt with a lot of drug addicts in my time as a police officer. And uh, you're right, you know, you, you, you clearly what's happened there is you've delayed the grief, but you, because you're so fixated, and this is what drug, drug dealers uh, users used to say to me, you know, that they wake up in the morning, all they're thinking about is the next fix, you know, and that's all they're motivated by. And I suppose you're the same in terms of, your fix is that is that bet and it it kind of overrides everything else in your life yeah. i suppose at that point yeah absolutely crazy crazy way of thinking isn't it crazy way of thinking yeah um so yeah i returned back to dublin after the funeral um I stayed there for the next 12 months i got a good job probably my highest paid job and every friday i get i get paid and it'd be gone in a matter of minutes i started gambling takings from work so i was committing crime at this point um you know, picking large amounts of money on cash jobs and stuff and going to the bookies with it and spending it and thinking I'd win. And, you know, it just, it all came sort of crashing down over there. I'd worked for, I'd worked for my dad for a short while at the start, but I got a, a job for like a contractor over there. So eventually I had to sort of felt like I, I had to come back home and um, face the music of these people that I owed money to two years before. Um, so at 26, I returned back to Bolton, reinvented myself again, got a good job because I thought, you know, if I get a good job, I'll be fine. And I was always thinking in my head, it's a fresh start. I'll try, I'll try, but I needed the addiction sorting and, and, I, and I always put it down to money and, and yes, gambling goes hand in hand with finances, but I just really wish, you know, at this point I owed money and a large amount of money, but it wasn't life changing. It, it could have been fixed and me trying to pay these people when I got back. And a lot of the time it was just interest then opened this other world that I'd already become good at being a bit of a blagger. And, you know, people use the word con man and I, and I was definitely that. And I think because of my job, it sort of um, kept people at arm's length and they trusted me. And a lot of them people that I was getting involved with at this time and starting loaning money off and lying to, a lot of them were involved in crime, but there were some people that were wealthy and believing me. And I was sort of, I got a job for a big firm again. Um, I had a nice car and I got myself rented accommodation that, that was nice. And in my head, I always thought, well, if I get a nice place, then, you know, that's me doing okay. And I just, I wasn't doing okay. I was living a complete and utter lie. I never paid my bills. I hated the person that I was. I was always reinventing myself, depending who I seen and who I was around. I was all different characters to all different people. Um, and I became a, a con man over this next sort of three years of gambling. Um, and this is where I'd say it came to a head because of that just going to take a break from the podcast to showcase an excellent product from our main sponsor rhe global it's called reams community safety 
It covers all your ASB case management needs, plus up-to-date community safety processes and supporting documents. Store all your community safety content in one place. Local edits can also be made so that you can customise it for your own organisation. Avoid expensive court costs by ensuring that you have the most up-to-date case law and keynote webinars to support with all the documents. Some of the topics to be covered will be the injunction, closure powers, community trigger, community protection notice, amongst a host of others. To obtain more information, you can contact the team via the website www.reams.org or email sales at rheglobal.com. I hope you're enjoying the Community Safety Podcast. If so, please rate, subscribe and leave a five-star review. This really helps to spread our message. How much do you think you were sort of owing at the point where you got, you then sort of, you know, had to get the help because you got to that point? How much do you reckon you had run up in debts? So I returned when I was 26. I, I don't really mention this next bit in my story, just for a few reasons really, but um, I returned at 26 and by 27, um, I owed about around the 30 grand mark and I tried to take my right. own life. I tried to take my own life, and um, I, t- I took an overdose basically, and I got put in hospital. And when I was in hospital, my mum came seeing me, um, and I was on like a psychiatric ward. Um, I'd just been admitted. Um, I wasn't sectioned or anything like that. It was just a safe space because of what had happened. And, and basically, yeah. I started talking for the first time to doctors about my problem, about the gambling problem. And I got, um, it was agreed that I could go to this place that was called Gordon Moody. And this was at 27. And I said, yes, I will go. Um, And what happened is, is I got back to my friends after hospital and I said to him, I'm going to rehab. And then I got a text off someone that I owed a large amount of money to um, and saying, oh, do you think you're running off to rehab? And I remember thinking, my mum said something. So I then got on to my mum because my mum was the only person who knew that I was going to rehab. And I said to my mum, you've told, you've told someone, I was very paranoid anyway at that point. I was always thinking people were saying things and because there were that many people after me. But I basically said to my mum, you've told someone because you're the only person that knows and she was getting really upset. And I was thinking, my mum actually, I know when my mum's being honest and she's up being upset and she was... She was saying, I I would never do that and getting really angry. And I then text these people back and for whatever reason, they told me the truth. And I just said, "Um, I'm not going to rehab. Who's told you that? And and they said, do you not think we know people who work at the hospital who have told us that you are going to rehab? And they sent me the address of the rehab. And I just had this massive meltdown of thinking, oh my God, I have told them everything in there. And whoever worked on that ward or has got information, someone's linked it and said it and I didn't go. And at this point, I owed around the 30 grand mark and I went on for another two years gambling and I owed 306 grand in, in two years. Wow. And I and I look back at that moment and, and I've shared it to some people the people close to me. I've not, I've not like been all over social media talking about it because I do share a lot of my stuff. But no. people always say to me, "You need to report." You need, and I'll be honest with you, I've just not got the energy because 
you know, it did get worse in them two years and things happened and, you know, traumatic events and stuff. And I just didn't have the energy to go back to that. However, um, I'd love, I'd love to find out who it was and I won't be angry. I just actually say what, what that did to me because, you know, 30 grand would have been a massive amount of money, but I might, if I've stopped being able to work through it, but instead the 306, what I got to and the amounts that I was gambling, trying to pay things off and, it just it just went crazy and, and don't get me wrong I'm not no one put a gun to me head and said go and do this and get this money off people but in desperation I, I I just I did it and made some bad decisions and yeah I I remember sort of finally getting to rehab at 29 and you know just before I got to rehab it 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 got to the point where I was kidnapped I was sort of put in a car and the machete held to my throat and. Um, for some people that I owed actually £4,000 to, which compared to what I owed some people was small, but they were serious people. Um, and for whatever reason, they decided to get my phone off me and ring my mum. And my mum was at work um, and they just said, we've got your son, we're going to torture him. And my mum dropped the phone in shot and eventually got back on the phone. Um, and they'd, they'd sort of gone. Um, and my mum then rung with the police and the police put, um, some on my phone and that my knit, someone had reported the registration and what felt like a lifetime away eventually um I got sort of pulled over got pulled over the car by the police and I remember not being arrested but me being taken to this house basically after I'd just been kidnapped and it wasn't the police station it was like a terraced house with no furniture in it and a, and a table in the middle of the room I remember thinking what's this and it, they must have been the CID and these lads that had got me were were wanted for an, a number of things. And and basically they, they said to me, what job do you do? And I told them and then they said, so you owe these £4,000 and you can't pay £4,000 out your wage. Well, my mate does a similar job to you and he can pull that out of his back pocket. And I said, well, your mate isn't a gambler. And it just was, it wasn't really spoken about. It was all, like you said at the start, it was all about drugs and, and other addictions. Gambling was something it just wasn't spoke about. So when I was telling them, they were no. just, they were thinking, they were saying to me, what organized crime are you involved in? And I said, loaning money off them and ripping people off. And I'm not involved in what you think I am, but these lads were involved in laundering their money through, um, loaning it to people and trying to put it into business. But they just didn't believe me. They just didn't believe me. Yeah, a complete and utter lack of understanding. You know, like I said to you earlier, it's all all about drugs and that kind of criminality. They wouldn't even probably resonate with, and it, and it was only towards the, the latter part of my service that the police started to get a little bit more savvy around loan sharks and stuff like that. They'd got away with it for years. Yeah. It was something that wasn't really wasn't really even looked at. Yeah. It's only been in the last few years that it's really come to the forefront, and there's been organisations out there because a mate of mine started working for one of these organisations where they've really started to take it seriously. Yeah. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I can imagine back then it wouldn't have even been looked at or even yeah. taken seriously. It would, would have been like you said, you know, well, why can't you pay four, four grand? What's the problem? So, yeah. yeah, I can totally see that. So what happened after that then? What 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 um, what um was the next step for you at that point? So, obviously, when I was in the back of that car, I was thinking, oh, my God, and... I yeah, always used, was the end, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I knew the people that I was involved with were um, 
dangerous people um and when they made threats sometimes it's not that they're actually um you believe it because they're just they're stupid they they would stab someone and not think about the consequences um where that could kill someone and they're not thinking about it they're just thinking they're just being um you know hard and bravado and this that and the other but they actually carry out and do it they're just nasty people so that night, um, I got released from the police station. I actually went to a Gambler's Anonymous meeting because I was trying to stop at the time. I remember sharing my story that night and everyone looking around and going, like, you've been kidnapped, what? It was like they couldn't give me no more help there because I dipped my toe in the water of trying to go back to Gambler's Anonymous a few times. And all my family had to stay in an hotel that night for the safety. My children did. My girlfriend at the time who I'd been with for two years didn't really even know I gambled. And she was like, what? is going on a family were finding out then what had happened and a dad was quite and still is quite an influential businessman in the country and he was sort of saying you need to get out of this relationship so that was the end of that and she stayed in the hotel that night with us but it didn't the relationship was doomed after that and then um my family just said right enough's enough um you, we don't want you in our life anymore. And my mum just said, like, she hates... My mum said the word she hated me, but she was just so upset. And she just said, um, you've, you, you've, like, ruined not only your own life, but you've ruined mine. Um, I can't cope with it anymore. I feel like I'm having a nervous breakdown. Um, and I just thought, you know, next week, I'll put this right. I'll put this right with my family and they'll be okay. And for the next six months, they didn't speak to me. And this was a big turning point for me. And again, if anyone's listening to this, we talk about families and enabling and, you know, addicts. And sadly my mum did because my mum bailed me out so many times that I always thought, well, no matter what, my mum's there and I can go back to her. But I bled her dry because of what I was doing. And in my head, I never thought I was ripping my mum off. I always thought I will pay her back. My intention was to pay her back, but it never worked like that because of, of the addiction and, and, and I believe my own lies, which is even more frightening. So for the next six months, yeah. no one spoke to me. I wasn't allowed to see my children. And then I started to go into this sort of really negative thought pattern of what's the point? If my family don't love me anymore and they don't want me in the life, then there's no point living. Despite that, I was getting up for work every day. I'm going to these business meetings and networking events and speaking to clients and oh, Mark's a nice lad and he's doing... And then at night, I would get home, um, go on the internet, you know, painless ways of taking your own life and all this. And I remember being on the stairs once, literally crying my eyes out with a, with a belt around my neck. I don't want to be, you know, too graphic, but just crying, thinking I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And eventually I did end up taking another overdose and went to the hospital and um, stayed there again for two weeks and um, then everyone found out you know what I've been doing again and he's been gambling again and everyone was finding out what I've been doing with this money um, and I had nowhere to go after that and my house got like I said my windows got put through my company guy got smashed up so what then did find out about everything and I went to the hospital toilets and I slept there and I missed that a bit earlier on in my story. I'd already slept there in, in my early 20s and I thought there's a disabled toilet here where I can get my head down for the night. And and I did that um, for the next quite a few nights, to be honest. And I'd wake up in the morning and go and steal 
a sandwich from the canteen thinking, what am I going to do? And I ended up going back to the ward and I just said, please get me some help. There's a place called Gordon Moody that you said you would help me. Please get me in touch with them. And that um, I ended up having a phone call with them and they said, right, there's a four week wait, wait. And I said, I've not got four weeks. I said, I'm either going to be murdered because of the amount of money that I owe. I'm either going to take my own life. I have got nowhere to go, please. And they said, we'll fast forward, you know, we'll fast track it. And it's two weeks then. Um, and I slept on my mate's couch um, for the next two weeks. And funnily enough, um, I, I owed one person around about £27,000. It, well, I always say 30, but it was it was 27000 And I didn't want this person to find out what I'd done. And I thought to myself, well, I get paid on the Friday before I go to rehab. What I'll try and do is, is I'll try and go to the bookies and I'll try and win the money and then I can go to the bookies. But in my head, I thought, well, if I win this, I might not have to go because I might be able to manage the other people. And funnily enough, I went in with my wage. Um, I drew all my monthly wage out and I couldn't stop winning. I'd not won, won for about two years and I could not stop winning. And I got up to £17,000 and I thought, I'm going to win it and, and, and I don't have to go to rehab. And the woman, this is the first time in 13 years of gambling, someone in the bookies, actually, this is the Friday before I ended up in rehab, said anything to me, even though I was erratic playing two machines and gambling all the way through it. The manager turned around and said, Mark, can I have a word with you? And I said, yeah. And she said, are you insane? And I went, sorry. And she went, are you insane? Because the bets that you've been putting on today, it's like, you must be insane. And I said, yeah, I am insane. Leave me alone. And I never collected money in the bookies. Never. Either the doors shut or, and I had to be asked to leave and if I had money at that point or I lost it all. And for whatever reason that day, I, I had £17,000 at one point and I went down to £400. And my £400, it was £200 a week that I needed for my first two weeks at Gordon Moody. And for whatever reason that day, I just give in and I said, enough's enough. And I pressed collect and I, and I walked out with £400 and I walked back to my friends. He didn't even know what I'd done. And I just said, please take me to rehab. And on the Sunday, he took me down. And this was in 2013 as a 29-year-old. And at that point, I'd lost every family member. I'd ruined my career. I'd upset everyone along the way. I'd had failed suicide attempts. Armour over me. I'd kidnapped. Um, my health, my mental and physical health were just on the floor. And I walked in as a 29-year-old at rehab, slumped on a chair, cried and said, please help me. And... And that's that's my turning point. That is crazy. What a story. Gordon Moody, obviously, you've obviously gone in there and didn't probably know what what was to, to be expected. I remember, actually, I remember doing a bit of research on you. And you, know, you have a bit of a joke about that. You thought you, you were sort of alluding to this, this rehab being like, you know, hot tubs and all this kind <laughs> yeah, of stuff, yeah. didn't you? Thinking yeah. that, you know, it was going to be uh, like... Um, like these these stars that go to rehab, I suppose that's what your view was yeah. at the time, wasn't it? I think, uh, yeah, rehab. But what was it actually like? What what was it actually like? What what is what is so unique? Do you think about Gordon Moody that got you to the other side? 
Yeah, um, yeah. When I arrived, there, it was just a bunch of Aussies joined up together, and I remember asking my friend to do another lap and another lap, and I was saying, "This can't be the place." There were no signs saying it was Gordon Moody, um, and he said, "You're going through that door." And when obviously I went through the door, and he was in the right place. But you know, the best way I can describe it, um, it doesn't matter about what your rehab is. It's about the actual, um, you know, the treatment that's inside and the therapist and the care that you get and it was mm. excellent for that. The therapist were all different, and but they all added value to it. There was also people in there that were just like me who were, were trying to recover from gambling. And that was a big thing as I could relate to people in there. Um, and mine was, you know, um, residential therapeutic where I couldn't leave. We could only leave to do our shopping and we were you know, sort of chaperoned on that as well. And we had our money taken off us. Um, but it's the place where I had intensive therapy, basically, and I learned a lot about myself. And it wasn't easy. There were times in there where I felt like running away, but I probably didn't know where to run to. Um, stupid things like I wanted an alarm clock to listen to talk sport, and they didn't give me one. Um, sorry, I wanted to buy one, and they said, do you want it or do you need it? And me being a little bit of a rebel at the time said, I want it. And they said, well, you don't need it. And so you're not having it. And I was sort of pacing up and down the garden. And yeah, you know, shortly before this, I was being kidnapped. And I was, I look back and think, where, where was my head at being so uptight about an alarm clock when I'd just been through all that? But it can almost become a little bit like Big Brother. So if anyone's like listening to this and, and you know, they've been to rehab, they might be able to relate or wondering that they might need help and they need to go there it's not always perfect in there. You, you have them bumps and your addiction sometimes can be trying to pull you back. But I stuck it out. I took it very seriously. I gave it hundred percent because I always say to people, I did work at Gordon Moody yesterday, speaking to some of the lads. And I said, um, if you give 80%, your addiction will drag you back. You know, you give, you gave hundred percent to your gambling and your addiction. You have got to give even more to your recovery and you've got to take it so, so serious. And, I believe I did and, you know, I didn't know the impact it had had until I left and I started to see how I was dealing with things that I wouldn't have normally dealt with of thinking, actually, I, I dealt with that quite well. I've been so used to making mistakes for such a long time where um, I wasn't getting things right, where I was actually thinking, actually, you handled that well then, Mark. And that was when I started sort of dipping my toe back in the water to normal life. That's when I knew actually that was brilliant and you know I got diagnosed with an illness when I was in there um I was passing a lot of blood and I was thinking the worst is this this cancer is this bowel cancer and I was so scared and I went to the doctors and I kept going back and saying it's not right and they were giving me medication to stop me going to the toilet Uh, but I actually had after about 12 times of going to the doctors they finally sent me for a colonoscopy and I had um, colitis um and that is no doubt been brought on because I just put myself under so much stress for such a long time. I believe, I believe my body just was not just mentally packing in, but physically as well. Um, so I had that to then to contend with, of being diagnosed in rehab, but I believe what I was taught in rehab, what I learned about myself and coping mechanisms and the resilience, it, it sort of better equipped me for what was next with my colitis. Cause that's been, difficult to deal with but I then went to the halfway house in there stayed there for a short while and then 
I ended up um, staying in the West Midlands. I moved to Stourbridge and I went back to Gordon Moody after about six months and I got a job volunteering there. And that was the time where I thought, do you know what? I'd love to give back. And I think that's the number one sort of job that people want to do when they, they, they all go to rehab. They all want to give back. And I was just the same. And um, I did that through my work at Gordon Moody as a volunteer, but then sort of planted that seed of thinking maybe one day when I've established a recovery, because if that's really important, if anyone in recovery in the early days is listening to this, you need to establish a recovery. You need to start, um, you know, learning from your mistakes and you're going to have a few bumps in the road. And as long as you come over them, but don't like leave rehab and think I'm going to go and share my story in a school because you're still in your early days. And I described that moment as, although I did feel really strong, I was like Bambi on, Bambi on ice in the early days of recovery. So um, I'm glad I went away, established a recovery and then thought I might go back into this and try and make a career of it. Do you think Gordon Moody saved your life, Mark? 100%, yeah. one one, 100% um, saved my life. It turned me into a man, made me a better dad, made me a better son. It made me better in a relationship. I didn't know it at the time, but years later, um, you know, I'm in a relationship. I'm, I'm, be- I'm a better partner. I'm a better person. Um, and I started looking... I could never look in the mirror through through my time of gambling because I hated who I saw. Um, I, I was a shell of a person. And in Gordon Moody, I started looking after myself. I started eating well again and started being able to look at myself in the mirror. And that might seem quite normal for people. Um, and it wasn't for me. And from that moment on, it, it, it gave me that. And I like the person who I see in the reflection now, and that's a big thing, but... You know, there's been lots of positive things, what it's done for me, but um, 100% saved my life. Um, if that place didn't exist, then my family would be looking at a grave with my name on it now. And I mean yeah. that. I know what you've said about the hurt and everything you've caused, in particular your mom and you know, your partner at the time and your family, but would you say that actually you had to do it for you to actually get to the other side yeah yeah absolutely it's it's hard when people say that um it's hard because you feel like you've been selfish for a long time and you need to start thinking of others but then in the early days of being in a rehab or whatever it might be people say you need to be selfish and you're thinking i've just been selfish for the last 13 years but what they mean by that is you've got to do it for yourself and sometimes when you know that someone's been pushed by the wife and they've been dragged through the door kicking and screaming, you're thinking, is this really going to work? And I do believe that time I'd had enough because I collected the money that day in the book, the bookies. So you have got to do it for yourself. You can also do it for other people and you can sort of flip it as well. If you're ever in a position where you do end up being pushed in a rehab, then flip it on its head and think, well, do you know what? I'm here now and I'm going to throw 100% into it and I am going to get better. Um, but yeah, that's that's an excellent point. You need to do it for yourself and be at that point where you've had enough. I think actually as well, for me, listening to your story, that competitive edge of, that you demonstrated as a footballer and you went, obviously that then was a bit destructive, I suppose, with your gambling. I think that trait in you, I think, helped to get you the other side because yeah, I think you yeah. sound a little bit like me. Once you get yourself into something and your teeth into something, you don't give up. And yeah, you become yeah. quite fixated on it. And I think 
you then became quite fixated on getting the other side because you knew it was your last chance. Yeah, yeah. I believe, you know, as much as my mum always says to me, did did I do a bad job? Um, and I say no, because you gave me that resilience. You you, you taught me um, right from wrong. And in the end, that came through. Um, you know, we struggled, but I always thought we always fought through it as youngsters. And I think them things that my mum taught me and that foundation that she gave me actually stood me in good stead when I when I needed it and it was 13 years later and eventually my mum did get that some some back and look my family took about two years to to, to start speaking to me I, I didn't come home to a welcome home party I come home to all the devastation and the hurt that I caused so what I had to do is is keep moving forward keep trying to put things right consistency not letting people down and get and getting that trust back in people and my word meaning something because it was just words at the start. My family probably thought we've heard all this before. He's been to rehab. Let's yeah. see who he is. He's going to fail. They, they would have had no trust in you at all, would they? No, at all no. because of what had gone on before. So you yeah. had, like you say, you had to prove that to them and show yeah. consistency. Yeah, and, and you know I, I did, and then and then next after that, the steps were to contact the people that I owe money to and one of the things that a member of staff said to me at Gordon Moody you, you do realize you're never going to pay that money off and maybe my competitive edge inside my head thought I said to myself I am and I'm I'm willing to paying that money off now um and I'm determined to pay every penny off because I, I didn't intend to do it and I hope that I keep doing well with my work and I hope I'm successful it's not my driving force money because of my addiction it's not but I'm determined to pay people off and and put wrong them rights and it, and it's funny because years down the line the lads that went round to my mum's house to smash her windows um reached out to a support line that I fund through wise up asking for help and they said to me you're not going to you're not going to help us are you and I said absolutely I'm going to help you I won't I won't turn my back on anyone that's gone through something that I do but I said but now you know what addiction does because when I when it was me, you, everyone hated me. Everyone was doing things to me. But now you're in the same shoes that I, I were in all them years ago. So it was sort of this moment of, wow, you know, it, it comes full circle. And I think everybody who's listening to this now will be affected by addiction at some point. And I don't always mean directly. I don't always mean gambling. But addiction, we all know someone whether it's drink, drugs, gambling, whatever it might be, who's affected Absolutely. by it, and and this, you know, it's it's ma- it's massive. And whether it's addiction, mental health, we're, we're all going to come across it at some point. So, you know, I, I it's hope. all linked. To, I think it's all interlinked in a way, isn't it? It's all yeah. interlinked in some ways. Um, there's lots of components to why people become addicted to things. So, yeah, like you said, you probably didn't experience that early trauma. But then at 15, with dad coming back on the scene, that was in effect, and obviously with becoming a dad at such a young age, there was a couple of trigger points there that I think had that impact on you. So it happened to you probably a little bit, you know, in the middle of your teens rather than that trauma earlier on in your life. And I can see why, you, you know, in some ways you went the way that you did. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. With that influence from your dad. But then um, tell me about um, the Wise Up charity, because obviously you've, You've got yourself back on track and yeah. you've set this wise up charity with your mate Liam. Tell yeah. me and about about how that all works and the type of work that you're doing. 
Yeah, so we're not actually a charity. We did get charity status at one point um, and we sort of stepped away from the charity sector and, you know, there were some wonderful charities, but we just didn't feel like it was for us and there's a few reasons yeah. for that. But basically, four years into my recovery, I was going back to Bolton from Stourbridge to see my family um, and I had a friend that was struggling who I'd met in year seven at school years before and everyone was telling me about this friend, how well he was doing because he had a recruitment company, 500 people working for him. He's got a lovely car and he spends thousands of pounds on cocaine every week like it was a good thing. And I was saying, what? I'm like, well, he's, he, the wheels are going to come off. And every time I saw him, I, I questioned him and he hated it and didn't like it. And and eventually, after me sticking my nose in as, dis, as he describes it, he says it was life-saving because... I was the person that he reached out to and eventually ended up losing everything and living at mine in Stourbridge on a blow-up bed and we started talking about school and we started talking about work and how no one knew and how we were both seen as successful but yet we had crippling addictions, both different ones and and we both went, there's something in this. Um, why don't we go into school and tell our story? And that's all it was at the start. It was, let's go into school and it, we've got a cool story and that's enough and we, we're quick quickly realized that's not a business so what we did is we told our story went back and thought how can we make this a prevention and awareness business that educates people um, and tells people where to go so we did that for quite a long time we didn't earn a wage for two years and we thought are we ever going to get paid and then that started to change um, and, and it started to do well and, and grow legs and we started getting involved with other people and bringing other people in other speakers and then what we decided to do is is not only prevention and awareness, which a lot of the time you're dealing with people who are not affected by addiction, it's just raising awareness. But we had yeah. a lot of we went on social media, started sharing our stories, and we got a lot of people starting reaching out saying, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. So what we did is we said a part of our profits through selling merchandise and from our business would fund a one night a week support line. Um and that went from one night to five nights in lockdown um and our phone lines um were busting basically um it's done through social media or we've done it done through our website and we've got a qr code that you can reach out to but that support line is something we're really proud of we don't make any money off it we fund it um but it's where people can reach out and we have then got partner treatment providers so if someone reached out to us and said i'm struggling um, they get someone who's professional on the end of the phone. We can then refer them for therapy that we fund for some people. Um, so people can get six sessions of free therapy. Um, and, you know, I can be in like Tesco now and people can, I can see people looking at me and, and they go like, thank you, th thank you, you've you've helped such a body or thank you, you've helped me. And I'm like, oh, that you know, that makes me feel so proud, probably more prouder than when I'm working in a football with a famous footballer, even though that's nice for a social media post and I do like the work. But then moments of someone saying, you've saved my son's life or wow, like I feel five years into Wise Up now, you know, I've built a business that I'm proud of. And, and I said to my mum, I spoke to my mum earlier on and I was in Starbucks yesterday and someone said, we've only got six hours to go on my shift and I remembered my old job and I used to clock watch all day and I thought to myself do you know what in in five years I have never clock watched in this job and and 
that is complete job satisfaction. I absolutely love what I do. It's my passion. I love helping people that were in the same shoes as me a few years ago. And I believe this is only the start and this isn't my ego talking. Um, we do stuff all over the country now, but it'll it'll grow legs. We'll help more people. It's not the Mark and Liam show anymore. It's about it's about bringing other people in. We lived experience, other speakers. Um, our support line will be from five nights a week to, to all different people on there for all different issues. It will go bigger and we'll help more people. And um, it's one of my, my greatest achievements, I think, setting this up. Nothing better, Mark, than helping other people and at the same time saving a lot of lives, you know, both directly and indirectly. Because as we've already said on this podcast today, you know, there's been so many people affected by your story you can see how many people that you are directly and indirectly helping and that's just incredible i think it's amazing what you you and liam are doing and just keep doing it because the more we raise awareness about this the more people we're going to save so i just think it's incredible how can people sort of um, reach out to the charity what's the best route um do you you want to give some information out yeah so we're on um all social media platforms um and we put like videos on there about recovery as well and mental health. Um, and wise up is spelled W H Y S U P. Um, so it's a little bit of a twist with the letters and, but it sort of grabs people's yeah, like attention. That. People, people, it's not what people keep thinking it's wise up, which could be relevant to some people that reach out on support line, but it's, <laughs> it's wise up. Um, and we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, um, uh, and to reach out and book a support call, um, go to our website or we do put links on our, uh, on our Instagram in the bio. There's a link there that you can go for straight through to it. We did have to turn social media messaging off because we were just overwhelmed with messages. And what we found that was doing is it was stopping people getting to our support line because they were speaking to Mark and Liam at the time and thinking, well, we've spoke to Mark and Liam now. We don't need to go and speak to that next person. So we've removed that now. You go straight through to our support line and you can book book a call. Or alternatively, if you want us to come in and do a talk to your school, your business, um, your football club, whatever it may be, from any age, we work with kids from the age of eight to, you know, we work with Warburton's, AOAXA, British Aerospace, all these big companies. Um, we'd be more than happy to come in and you can contact us on our website again or or info at wiseup.co.uk email and we'll we'll be delighted to speak to you and hopefully help you. Brilliant. Take that on board, anybody that's listening, because I think uh, you know, if you are uh, if you are, you know, in the situation that Mark found himself in, then uh, utilize all the resources that are out there and it just sounds like this is brilliant. Mark, we're coming to the end now. I think this is the longest interview we've, I've ever oh, done. Oh, sorry, sorry, um, sorry. Which, no, 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 no. Don't say sorry because that says a lot to me because I could talk to you all day. So don't oh. apologize. And it's just an incredible story. There is no way on this earth that I can cut this short. So oh. don't apologize at all. But what I wanted to ask you was, is is there a question that or anything you want to cover um, that we haven't already covered before we wrap up the interview? Um, one, yeah, one thing I will say, it's not really a question. It's sort of a a statement really. Um, 
there might be people listening to this that have got a family member or a friend or they might be going through it. And when you're going through it, it's the worst thing in the world. And and whether, you know, I've mentioned some big, big figures, but it doesn't have to be massive figures or it doesn't have to be gambling. If it's having a massive impact on your life and you're thinking, this is never going to get better. In your head, that's what you always think. You're thinking it's never going to get better. This is, there's no way out of it. One thing I want to make clear is there is always a way out. And there are always people, even if you've lost every family member, every friend, there are always people that will help you. I found help 100 miles away from where I lived of people I never even met. So that says to me, there's people all in this country that will open the door, will help you and will fight for you. So don't feel alone and certainly don't feel like you're at the point or or feel like the only way out is to take your own life because there are too many people doing that. Um, so yeah, just to end on that really, a bit of a, a positive of thinking. Wow, brilliant. I hope, I hope someone is listening to this and thinking, do you know what? I'm going to get myself sorted now and I'm going to get out of this and we might be we might Absolutely. be the, the first call that you make. Do you know what, Mark? If this if this, if this podcast if this episode saves one life, you know what, mate? We've done our job. Yeah, and that, and, that, and that's the way we've got to look at it, you know, because as we said already, the amount of people get affected by one life, the you know the knock on effect of that as well. Yeah. So, and I'm pretty sure we will do that. Um, I've put out social media posts in the past around mental health, my own mental health journey, and. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine contacted me the one day and said, you know what, a couple of my mates reached out to me after that post and he contacted these, these two lads and they were literally contemplating suicide. Yeah. So it does, it definitely does work, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is why I, I, I do this, what I do, because it does save lives, you know, and that's the whole point of this podcast. So I just want to thank you, Mark, for being so open and honest. Your journey, your life is incredible. We're all, you know, we're all human beings. We've all got faults, but you know what, mate? To have gone through it and to come out the other side, you should be immensely proud of yourself because I think it's just awesome what you've done and the amount of people that you're now helping to get their lives back on track. You know, you should you should be incredibly proud of what you've achieved and just a big thank you for coming on and sharing your your sort of um, your life experiences with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me and thank you for the um, excellent questions. It's not always like that if the, if the other person's not got that understanding, but I can obviously tell you've got a good understanding and your questions made it very easy for me. And I hope, like you said, someone's listening and it can help them. But thanks for the opportunity and I'm sure we'll we'll do something again in the future. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And uh, thank you to all our listeners again. We really do appreciate your support with this podcast and we will catch you on the next episode. That was a brilliant and honest interview with Mark Murray, and another fine example of someone hitting rock bottom by having the strength and courage to turn their life around. Thanks again for listening to the Community Safety Podcast, and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and leave a five-star review, and we will catch you on the next episode. Alongside support from St Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Barden Co-Recruitment in partnership with District 4, you have been listening to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon.